Hey everyone, welcome to the Voices in Japan podcast with your hosts Ben and Burke. On today's show, we are joined by Hippie, a Nisiko local. He's had a very interesting life so far, and we get to talk about a lot of different things, such as his、uh, construction career, building his family home as a kid back in Australia. Living in Kuchan, Hokkaido, and commuting to Australia every five weeks whilst he was working in the offshore oil and gas industry. Starting his furniture building business, Yoshitomo Design. Life in Nisiko, Hokkaido, and how the area is growing and developing every year, and much, much more. All right, on with the show. Ich, me, sang. Guys. Cheers, Damien. Cheers, Damien. Hippie. 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 Where did that nickname come from? Probably from when I was in high school.、Um, the final year of high school, we didn't actually have to have a uniform, and I made a lot of my own clothes. And so they were pretty out there, hippie <laughs> style clothing. And, and my older brothers, they just used to just call me the dirty hippie. <laughs> and then it just stuck. And. and、um, I think the first time I travelled overseas was、uh, I was living in the Philippines, and every time I'd introduce myself as Damien, it'd be Daniel, Dam-、uh, and it just said hippie. And,、oh, easy to remember. And same here in Japan. It's, it's been much easier to remember.、Uh-huh. And it's the only thing I can write in katakana is, is hippie. <laughs> so it, stuck. it just stuck. And yeah, so easy, easy to remember.、Uh, and, and where was high school? Uh, I was in a small country town in、um, Victoria,、okay. in a small town called Horsham,、um, about the same population as Kuchan, where I live now, so about 15,000 people, rural, farming town, small town nowhere, sort of、um, halfway between Melbourne and Adelaide on the inland highway, so there's really nothing to see.、Mm. People stop to get fuel and cruise through. and... But it was, it was a good town, it was a good place to grow up, and,、um, but it led to bigger and better things. So. Nice.、Mm. So, what, what brought you to Japan?、Uh, an aeroplane, of course. <laughs> <laughs>、um, I, was, I was living up in Cairns in North Queensland,、um, working in the dive industry. The boat that I worked on was, it was owned by a Japanese company, so we had、uh, a lot of staff and a lot of customers with Japanese. And, Had, had some、uh, really good friends amongst the crew and, and always wanted to come here for some reason. My brother, the mystiqueness of yeah, Japan, right? My, my brother was heavily into、um, karate when he was in his <laughs> teens, and、mm. so he loved in, anything Japanese, and that sort of got me on it. And, and I came over just thinking, well, why not?、So. And I think also when I'd been living in the Philippines, there was a customer that used to come over for three months at a time, twice a year. And he was an American guy and he was based in Tokyo. And he kept saying, Oh, you should come to Japan. You know, it's, it's, you know, you'd like it, you'd fit in. And, and I said, like, What do you do that lets you have you know, six months off? And he goes, Oh, I'm a teacher. And I was like, Okay, that sounds too good to be true. But <laughs> he was uh, working um, freelance, mostly as a business. Consultant, I guess you'd probably call him.、Um, he had clients like Fujitsu and big high end companies, and he was just like the in house teacher teaching American business culture. Yeah, those are, those are good gigs if you can get them because、yeah. they, pay, they pay well as well. Yeah, well. and he was on like good money, and because he had multiple clients, he would say to you know, Fujitsu, I can fit these classes into this block, this block, and this block. And, but I'm busy for you know, the next three months. But the next three months, he was in the Philippines sitting on a beach. <laughs> but they didn't know that. And the other client who, who he worked with, you know, he'd fit them into different blocks. And same sort of thing. He'd be able to skip out of the country for three months at a time. And, and he said, you know, you've got to come. So basically, after I left the Philippines, I went back to Australia for a little while. 
and then um, I was coming up to 30, so my working holiday visa was about to run out. And so I took the opportunity and, and popped over. Last chance. Yeah. yeah. So. Well, how does that work again? What is the limit on the work? Because uh, America doesn't have a working holiday visa, so I always get confused. But what's the limit on the working holiday visa age? Like, um, it- you have to activate it within your 30th year. So you can be 30 years and 364 days old. And <laughs> as long as you've applied for the visa, then once you enter Japan... Then you've got um, Australians get 18 months. Um, wow. I think England might get two years. Um, I don't know, man. I, d- I think it does. But, but most countries are 12 months. Oh, and this so- is like a, the working visa you're talking about. Yeah, working about. holiday visa. Uh, well, when I came over, because I came over through like an English school and I got three years off the bat, but then my coworker, who was also from Britain, she got one year. Yeah, so it kind of depends. But that was the teaching visa. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like working holiday visa. It's, it's a, little it's bit a different, different visa, setup, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you're not meant to work full time. Um, I came over and taught uh, English, like uh, so many others. Um, I was working for the notorious Nova <laughs> back in the day before they went bust. Well, you know, they've opened up again like in the last couple of years yeah. and they started advertising again recently. So I got an email from uh, this job uh, subscription site that I have and they're looking for people in Sapporo again. But they're paying like 2500 in a lesson mm. well, for, for an hour, yeah. which is, is pretty cheap for, uh, for a company of their stature, I guess. But it seems like they're yeah they they're trying to make a comeback. Yeah, but I, I think it was it was a good job. Uh, it was slack. <laughs> I, I I was only allowed to work twenty eight hours uh, a week. That's part of the um, working holiday. Is that is that twenty eight teaching hours or um, 28, twenty eight contact hours or something? I guess twenty eight hours on site. Really. <laughs> yeah, so, right. But I, I didn't work until f- uh, five pm. I did the five pm till nine pm shift, mm. um, five days a week, and then I think on Saturdays I used to do one pm. I think I did one pm till nine pm. So it was like a full day on the last. Man, that sounds day. cruisy. When when was that? What year was that? 2003 is when I came over. So I did that for uh, six months. Um, that was uh, uh, probably my limit. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Was it you didn't enjoy the teaching or just like the, the work conditions? Or? The teaching I loved. Yeah. Um, I never yeah. taught by the book. Um, <laughs> I hated their curriculum. It was ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> Being a conversation school, it was, you know, I did my lessons around conversation. Yeah. You know, I think I, you know, read the book, you know, followed the guidelines for the first month until they sort of gave me a, um, a pass my probation, <laughs> <laughs> and then after that, I was just free for all. And I mean, I love talking to to these students, um, and you know, and you've got students from five years old to ninety five years old, and yeah. and um, so I, I used to talk probably too much. The six months was. Six months was enough. I, I had um, quite a few, uh, what they call a tapatsu, which is a didn't turn up for work. <laughs> <laughs> I had quite a lot of them, even though I didn't start till 5 p.m. <laughs> because, because, like, teaching at Nova was about uh, drinking at night. And That's what we've kind of heard from some people that have worked there. Yeah. Yeah. And when yeah. you don't have to start till 5 p.m., you can drink all night. <laughs> and we did. And this was in Tokyo as well? Uh, this was in Fujisawa, mm. um, in Kanagawa, okay. so down, down by the beach. Yeah. And so That's that, a nice spot. I like, I like that area. It's a very nice spot. Mm. And too many bars that, you know, will close when you decide to leave. Yeah. So. And that's where you met our mutual friend down in Fujisawa. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yep. So we, we worked together there. Um, he'd arrived, I think, about a year before me, but we were all sort of working and living and drinking in the same sort of um, areas. But the, the biggest problem for me for teaching was a suit and tie. <laughs> and, I, and I cannot wear a suit and tie. So Nova was pretty strict with their... Yeah. 
their uh, their uniform strict suit and tie yeah you uh, had to like a lot of the guys would wear a jacket but you know it was so hot down there that you know at least you could peel off to a you know a long sleeve shirt and a, and uh, yeah there was probably no cool biz at that time right i think cool biz was quite a bit later like yeah. 2009 i would say something like that yeah i guess yeah. probably after 2011 after the tsunami when everyone <laughs> all right when the power was at a premium yeah. then they decided to you know we can turn the air cons off or turn them off from minus 15 <laughs> to a to a regular temperature and you can wear a short sleeve shirt and but still wear a tie and yeah or loosen the tie or yeah, yeah. i mean in some cases especially up here like we you don't need a tie for most most of the year i think cool biz stays until what like october time or something like that i'm not I can't yeah really i think remember. down in the tokyo area goes like uh beginning or actually might be like sometime in may uh until i guess september but here it doesn't usually start to like beginning of july and then finishes like mid-september or something at least it did at my old company and i just finished it yeah were they pretty strict on that were they like okay cool biz starts now yeah, Corby's finishes. So yeah, get your suits back it on. It was ridiculous, times. and like the uh, offices in Tokyo had already started, but uh, ours was the home office up in Sapporo, and like they were like nobody. You have to, and actually one year like somebody uh, just showed up without a tie, and they got scolded and reprimanded. <laughs> wow. It was pretty ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. I think everything's getting a lot looser now, especially with the whole situation going on with uh, COVID and everything. People working from home and whatnot. But yeah, they were. Like, uh, they would send out an announcement to all the internal email boxes about uh, exactly when Cool Biz would start and when it would finish and what qualified for Cool Biz and everything. So it's pretty strict. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I guess the temperatures are a little bit different up here as well. Like, yeah. We don't have the uh, the Tokyo swelter. So, But yeah. it's, it's changing, especially this summer. This summer's I mean, been very warm. I'm not sure what it's been like in Nisika. I guess it's probably similar to Sapporo or, you know, Kuchan. And Nisiko, are they quite similar temperatures compared uh, we're, to Sapporo? We're usually a few degrees below her, but when we get up to 30 degrees, it feels hot. If we have a day of, you know, 28, the locals are, you know, <laughs> enjoying their summer barbecue season. But when it gets to 30, it's, it just changes. And, and we generally don't have the humidity, but this summer we've had some crazy humidity. Was it maybe two weeks ago, uh, there was quite a big storm that we had following you know days of 32 degrees and then a big downpour and then it went to like you know 98 percent humidity for a few days and yeah. and i came to sapporo actually when i come and saw you ben last time it was i think it was 32 that day yeah and was scorcher man and the aircon in my car decided not to work oh, <laughs> And it blew some cold air for about three seconds, and then it was just like a furnace. And it was like, <laughs> all right, windows down and, and sweat it out. And, but it's okay. It's, it's also been like hot and humid at night, too. Usually, Sapporo, Hokkaido, at least, like it, it might be hot during the day, but it'll usually cool off to a comfortable temperature at night. But it's kind of been like lasting through the night. And then all of a sudden, from what, two days ago, drops down to like 18 degrees, 17 yeah. degrees now. So, Well, we've been taking advantage of the, the go-to travel campaign because of the, the go-to travel, all the hotel prices have gone down to yeah. ridiculously low prices. Like you can stay in a, I think, three, four-star hotel for like two to three thousand yen a night. Oh, wow. Nice. So me, so we didn't have aircon at our home. So you go and stay yeah, in a hotel? Yeah, so we stay in a hotel like on a Friday night, Saturday night, just you know spend a couple of thousand yen and we're yeah. staying in like a real nice hotel for dirt cheap and originally the ones we stayed at and they're like right in town but the original price that they said on their website was like 20,000 yen a night but I don't know I think it's maybe a bit of a market employee you know trying to See, show you how much you're, you're saving to get to get you in but it yeah. was still man it was so cheap and it's, it's definitely che- worth it cheap enough to move in yeah yeah right <laughs> yeah so we we took advantage of that and um yeah I'm, I'm glad we did that for sure so the the go-to travel has has been beneficial for even like local people yeah. you know What's it like in Niseko right now in terms of people coming in, travelers and stuff? Are there people there? Or it's Not really. It's yeah. uh, Summer is always quiet. You obviously get the domestic travel over summer. I see a lot of the like the rafting companies and stuff like that there, you know, going gangbusters. But generally, if you go up to the main ski hill in Hirafu, it's, it's a ghost town. 
Um, the only only activity is construction, which, <laughs> which is every summer, because you've got a limited time to to build new hotels and pensions and stuff like that. So um, there's a lot of projects that are going on that obviously were committed before COVID, and so they're ploughing through and they'll be ready ready to open in you know, probably December and not have too many customers this year i think so yeah i mean what's the general sense do you know like are people just kind of fingers crossed and hoping as much as possible that things get sorted out soon and back to normal soon or are people kind of now settling into the idea that it might actually take a little bit of time to i think most people are realistic and expecting a very low winter not coming up so um i've predicted 24 meters of snow that's that's um (laughs) my aim this year i think <laughs> and fresh lines at 2 p.m exactly <laughs> so, yeah. so it's going to be a locals winter yeah it's yeah. going to be awesome, it's going to be a good winter i yeah. think yeah. for for us guys for yeah. sure yeah. But you, do you snowboard a lot i have i haven't snowboarded in three years <laughs> oh wow yeah. even being out there you haven't snowboarded. i live i live two kilometers from um, the nearest lift which is um Hanazono, and i haven't dusted my board for three yeah three years i reckon <laughs> wow so, is, there, is there a reason for that i'm just busy doing other stuff like my business uh runs all year round and then in, in winter i take on quite a large snow clearing contract I, I live basically surrounded by farmland and the farm uh, is owned by a friend of mine next door he he's based in hong kong but sort of gets out only two three times a year but he's driveway is around about three kilometers long <laughs> wow. of um he's it, got a farm and, and his private residence and it's yeah three kilometers of snow clearing that has to be done every morning wow. so that's uh, my job but i get to drive this you know really large farm tractor with a snowblower <laughs> mounted on the front it's got heating and a good stereo and an ashtray <laughs> and that's that's my, the first two hours of my day um starting around about 5 a.m is is snow clearing and oh, early and then i get to i bring the i drive the tractor back to my place and do my snow clearing and then by probably eight nine o'clock i start my day and then from there i i go into you know production mode whatever i'm i'm building at the time and and then there's always you know other jobs and other chores that have to be done just because it's winter n- not everything stops and um so i just plod up plod along but the snow does slow your day down um what you can achieve in a summer's day you're you're lucky if you can get half of that on a winter's day so now you're doing um your furniture building Yep. Company. Yep. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I've been, uh, I've just finished my third year um, of opening a, a company called Yoshitomo Design. Yoshitomo, Yoshitomo Designs. Yeah. And so I mostly make um, yeah, custom bespoke furniture using as much reclaimed materials as possible, all really old reclaimed timbers, steel, glass, concrete, sort of mixed media, and just whatever the, my customers want. I basically make so. The who who are the general customers? Um, most of them are probably based in Hong Kong, Singapore, mainland China. They all have private houses. They're not rental properties. They're purely private houses. And in most cases, it's it's actually the only house they own. Like really? because most of them in Hong Kong don't own ha- houses; they rent. Right. And so for these people to have you know part of the dream of owning your own home it's easier for them to do it in in the nisiko area so um so i don't rely on like sort of tourism in in a sense for my customers it's um all been word of mouth they're all high-end customers and they like what they like and they're sort of prepared to pay for you know individual things and so they're more mainly kind of based in nisico the, yeah. these homeowners yeah. yeah yeah so i don't i haven't had a customer any further than yeah probably nisico is the <laughs> nisico town which everyone confuses nisico as like a the the, the main ski hill like nisico right. town is actually a small farming town on the edge yeah um, I, I remember i had that confusion because if you get the train 
to Nisiko, yes. you're you're kind you're of in, in the wrong, the wrong spot. spot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You want to get the train to to Kuchan, right? Kuchan's probably the closest. Hira- if you want to go skiing, this yeah, is if you Hirafu skiing. does have a train station, but it's also off the beaten track. It's it's closer to to drive from Kuchan, and that's where most of the um, resort and the, the pensions will pick you up from. Um, plus, the train stops them way more often than Harafu. Yeah. yeah. Do, do you guys know what the plan is going to be when they finally do get the Shinkansen set up? Is it is there going to be a stop at the in the resort area in the at the mountain, or is it still just going to be in Kuchan? Will still be the main stop. Ku- yeah, Kuchan will be the stop. Yeah. And from there, there's all sorts of plans that I've seen from. Um, I, uh, for Hanazono, I saw a plan where they will have a gondola wow. f- that will leave the train station and take you straight to the to the resort. How long uh, is that? It's, uh, it's four four kilometres. Okay, but it's it's quite an accessible uh, route, uh-huh. like, and it would make sense. Um, means I can go drinking in in Kuchan and catch the gondola home. <laughs> <laughs> I might have to jump, you know, just before the end. <laughs> so just just going a bit. Back again after uh, after you finished teaching for six months. What did yep. you do after that? I t- took a I guess a sabbatical. I went back to Australia. Uh, originally, um, I was planning to come here to Hokkaido, and when I joined Nova, within a month, I asked for a transfer to to come to here, and they basically said not a chance. <laughs> said, everyone wants Hokkaido and everyone oh, really? wants Okinawa. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. And um, so after six months, I basically said, um, well, I'm, I'm quitting. And they said, well, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have to sack you. <laughs> but I was ready to... I came up here on, I think it was 2006, 2005, 2006, Christmas, New Year. And come and had a look, and I went, you know, I like this place. And then um, I ended up going back to Australia for, I think it was about four years. At that stage, I'd been um, working in construction here. After I left Nova, as I said, I was planning to come to Hokkaido. Um, I had, I think, three going away parties, (laughs) and I never left. (laughs) And so I was still actually in um, Kanagawa, and I was uh, couch surfing on a friend's sofa. He was a a Canadian builder, and he said, do you want some work before you take off? And I said, oh, yeah, I'll do that. And a year later, I was still on his couch. (laughs) Actually, I think I'd moved into the spare bedroom by then (laughs) because he felt that I was permanent (laughs) and so i worked in um uh, two by four um canadian construction um, building houses and then after that i took off and i worked for a another canadian as a plaster and painter and that sort of took up two and a half years i guess so i was with the six months of nova and then two and a half years of construction i'd been here for three years at that stage and and then it was time that the uh, I had left because um, I'd been coming in on tourist visas, <laughs> <laughs> and immigration kindly noted that um, I should be going home for a while. So I, I went back to Australia and continued in construction. And then after that, um, what did I do? Oh, I moved from moved to Western Australia, and my whole aim was to get into the offshore oil and gas um, industry and um, I got a break and um, got to join a, a Norwegian shipping company they said to me where do you where do you live and I said Japan <laughs> and they said yeah that's cool you know we've got people living all over the world so you can call your home port Japan so I joined this company and um, and then started commuting back to um, Kuchan that's when I moved up to Hokkaido you know for real Wow. Yeah. Is, uh, did you know something about that industry beforehand, or you said you were aiming to get into it? Or? Yeah, well, because I'd, I'd been working in the dive industry previously in Queensland. Um, I had th- three years working on tourist boats, you know, taking people out scuba diving. Um, I was a cameraman at the time, so I'd be making you know, happy snap videos of uh, people coming out diving for the first time. And during that time, 
One of my bosses, he used to go to the Philippines quite a lot. He said, you know, you should come over here. You know, no one's doing this video work. There's some really good diving. So I thought, yeah, I'll go over. And I went for three months and stayed for three years. And um, that's where I met my mate from Tokyo who said, you should come to Japan. But in the meantime, as I said, I went back to Australia. And, and so I think just working on smaller boats, like I always wanted to, you know, I wanted to be a captain. That was my, my goal. So when I joined this Norwegian company, they said, um, what's your plan? I said, I want to be a captain. And they said, you know, that's going to be at least probably 10 years to get there. I said, that's cool. I've got time. And so I joined this company as a, what we call an able seaman. Um, which is basically a sailor and deckhand. Our job was moving drilling platforms, so f- for oil and gas floating platforms that are um, they're pro- approximately 100 metre square platforms that float in the ocean and, and drill four or five kilometres down into the ocean wow. floor. And, and our job was to, to relocate them when they had to change positions for drilling. So our ship was a... It's about an 80-metre long tugboat. Wow. 30,000 horsepower. um, Just brute force sort of boat. And our job was to move these massive, almost like floating cities so they could uh, drill and find gas and oil and keep us warm and keep our cars going. How long was uh, each, like, period being on the ship? Uh, I would normally work on a five-week-on, five-week-off roster. Wow. So 35 days straight uh, working on the ship and then fly back to Japan. Usually it took me about 24 hours at the shortest possible way to get home. It was uh, four flights. So I'd have to fly from the northwest of Australia down to Perth, from Perth to Singapore, Singapore to Tokyo, Tokyo to Chitose. And, wow. And so... About 24 hours was the shortest I could do it. Um, what is the, uh, I mean, I would, my just, you know, imagination, without knowing anything about it, is that there would probably be a lot of downtime uh, until you're at the site working. But are you actually pretty busy during that five weeks of being on the boat, or is there a lot of downtime during the transit and everything? Um, yes and no. The, the transit from our main port was uh, about 28 hours to get from port to location okay. once we're on location depending what the rig wanted we serviced them we, we would bring out all their equipment all their food supplies drilling fluids you know diesel everything that the the rig needs to run and once we've done um, the handover of all that cargo then if they were going to be drilling for the next you know two or three weeks then we would just basically bob in the ocean and do circles for, oh, really? for the time. Usually once a week we'd go back to port to take back equipment that they were no longer needing because um, premium our space was a premium on a, on a rig. So if there's something that's not being used, it gets shuffled down to the, to the ship mm-hmm. and then taken back to town and swapped out for other stuff. So we'd have some months we would just, you know, perform maintenance on the ship, which is just chipping rust and painting. Like a, a ship is always going to decay in the ocean, so a big part of our job was you know, just maintaining the, the vessel and keeping equipment going. And But then other times during that whole month, the rig might move three times. So we're on a 24-hour schedule where you're working usually six hours on, six hours off, and so you'd work for six sleep for six work for six sleep for six and <laughs> sounds good for the body <laughs> oh, it's it's horrible yeah. it's, it's like yeah it sounds tough yeah wow. and you're working in summer we were 500 kilometers offshore about halfway between Broome and east timor you're in the middle of nowhere in the, the northwest of australia and it's you know it can be 48 degrees and 96 percent humidity and you're working in full overalls hard hats boots, gloves. Did you like it? Did you enjoy this job? Because no. you did it for a while. Yeah, I mean, I loved the job. Yeah, it was no no two days were the same. No other job gave me six months paid vacation either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and, and it was it was ridiculous money. Like, you know, but um, people don't want to uh, leave the comfort of their home and go and do these remote jobs. But, you know, for me, that's that was the... Uh, 
the catalyst or the goal is to, to get away from a regular job, then eventually train up to become a captain. That was the whole um, plan. And then after that, I figured, you know, on a captain's wage, I could work three months a year. <laughs> <laughs> Is there any, uh, any disasters, any like really frightening incidents that happened while you guys were like out at sea and stuff where everything was so well planned and executed that didn't ever really run into anything too serious? No, we had our times to to worry about like um that whole top corner of australia is known as cyclone alley um usually between i think it's december and march it's typhoon season and they come through there quite often and it's and it's and it's big seas but our, our, our boat was designed for the north sea i mean it could punch through heavy heavy weather oil and gas is so regulated with like health and safety is like off the charts where you've got to fill in a you know a form in triplicate to take a shit (laughs) just about (laughs) so things are done safely i worked with a really good crew um we had 15 of us on board ranging from the captain down to the the deckhands down to the engineers and and we we took it seriously and you know because if things did go wrong, they went wrong really bad. Like life-threatening oh, kind of completely, bad. yeah. Probably the, the most dangerous task that we did was um, handing cargo to the rig. The rig would have a crane that's oh, 100 metres above you Jeez. and they would drop down a line or a, a cable to connect up to a, a container. All of the equipment was in like steel shipping containers so from 20 foot containers down to tiny little open baskets that are you know designed specifically for a a drilling head or or whatever equipment they had when you're in say you know five meter swell and you're parked literally i don't know five meters from the from the leg of the rig and the the ship is going up and down up and down um and you're trying to grab a hook to hook onto the <laughs> to the cargo and then send it off like if if that ship you know moves sideways suddenly or the 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 rig lifts up too quickly or when we're going down or or, or on the up a container can swing and you know they might be you know, five six hundred kilos just for the container and yeah. and when that swings and hits a body that's it's game over and we had not on our boat but when I was out there, we had a um, two crew members hit by a, a container. It was a multitude of errors that um, they shouldn't have been there. They should have actually overridden the, the rig's command to say that we want something, and they should have said no. But you know, it happened, and and um, yeah, a guy got yeah completely squashed. Oh man, yeah, I was wondering, like, do, I mean, do they wait for like the perfect? ocean conditions <clears throat> before working but then you said it was still like some swells that, that was just regular it was always going to be some swells or it's i mean it's depending on the season like some some days you can be out there and it's like glass like and it's like the most beautiful place and you I mean you could skip rocks across the the ocean surface and then other days yeah it can be up to five meter swell and our ship can handle that. Um, it was designed, as I said, for the North Sea, which is never flat. Mm. But um, at the same time, it, it would come down to us working on deck and just say, no, it's too dangerous. Let's just pull off. We'll wait, reassess, maybe go around the other side of the rig where the, you might have um, <coughs> protection from the wind and things like that. And the company... Oh, well, the client that we worked for was a was actually a Japanese client. They were developing a, a gas field, so basically gas can come here to Japan for the next forty years. And and right off the bat, they just said everyone has the the right to say no. And so it was it was good working under those conditions. So so even if you had the a moment where you thought you know something's a little bit sketchy, just stop, walk away, go and have a cigarette. Uh, reassess the situation and then and if it doesn't get better we just say no we'll come back in a few hours so but it was as i said there was potential for incredible loss of life but we played the rules that you know safety is first and we are just going to take a short break to talk about one of our lovely sponsors hokkaido guide 
Hokkaido Guide has been established for over 10 years, written by locals for locals and international tourists alike, offering information on all types of businesses and locations around Hokkaido. You can find out about sightseeing, nightlife, events, services, food, entertainment, outdoor activities, basically anything you want to know about Hokkaido, you can find it here. If you have a company or service in Hokkaido that you want to advertise, it is completely free to join a business directory. And there's also advertising space available on the, on the website. So, for more information, check out HokkaidoGuide.com. All right, back to the show. Were there、uh, like physical requirements to work on the ship? Like, are there guys our size on the ship or yeah, yeah, yeah. just anybody? There's,、yeah. no, there's no, no,、um, no real restrictions. We didn't have too many girls in the industry.、Uh, we did have some.、Um, it's always been a male dominated. Area and mostly because I think a lot of girls just looked at the physical work of it、um, and just said they're not capable. But we had some some tough some tough chicks work with us, and from uh, being um, able seamen or able sea people, I guess, <laughs> <laughs> to cooks, to captains, to engineers, we had girls sort of、um, fill all roles, but that was still only maybe five percent of of the total staff. That we had. Okay. Yeah. yeah I mean, because that's、yeah. usually a common kind of issue with working in that kind of industry, right? It's like being away from female company, I guess. Like one of my friends, he's a, he's a deep sea diver back in, in the UK. And yeah, and he would go off like a month、um, off on an oil rig. But I think he said there was, yeah, literally no women there. So he'd come back home and his balls are like, Watermelons, you know, and he's just like <laughs> raring to go out and stuff. <laughs> and I hear that's like quite a common, I don't, maybe a common myth that is there among was, that. There's no tissues in his cabin because <laughs> <laughs> there's usually quite a lot of porn on rigs. <laughs> But yeah, I think that's how we spend most of his free time or his downtime. Yeah. But I guess people on the rigs, they mostly have to share cabins. Um, you might have two or four people in a cabin. We were lucky on the ship that we all had our own cabins that was kind of set up through, I guess, union sort of rules and, and comfort、um, because you are out there for a long time. So it was nice to actually have you, you know, you had a, it was still only a small cabin, but felt like being in a, like a, a Leo Palace <laughs> apartment. Like you had a shower, you had a toilet. Um, you had a, you know, a desk and a bed. And everything you need. Everything you needed.、Yeah. And, and then in the, in the main part of the vessel, you ha- had a massive big galley, big eating area, big lounge room that could you know, accommodate 20 people.、Um, you know, we had、uh, cable TV and internet. And, you know, we, were,、nice. we were looked after, but you still needed those times to, to get to your cabin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> did, you ever, uh, did you ever think or have the desire to work on one of the actual drill sites? No,、nah, I think for them, they go nowhere. Yeah. Like, they just see the same thing every day. Whereas we got to go back to port. We would、um, usually every two and a half years,、um, our ship would have to go to Singapore for, for dry dock, which is usually a requirement so you can. Uh, repaint the vessel, fix any machinery,、um, basically do your、uh, registration for a ship. So we get to Singapore quite a bit. And,、um, Sounds nice. Yeah, yeah Singapore. Yeah, yeah Singapore is awesome. It's a、yeah. really great town. And, and because I used to fly Singapore Airlines to and from work, I would stop there every trip. Sort of going there and back, and I met my girlfriend there. Oh, nice. So we had a, a very long distance relationship for <laughs> five years、um, until she moved here to Japan. So, she, oh, so she's from Singapore? She's from the Philippines, but she'd been working in、um, HR recruitment in,、um, in Singapore for, I think she'd been there maybe four years before I met her. We met on Tinder. As, oh, you know, yeah. It, Singapore it, Tinder. It does work. <laughs> But our ship was there for,、uh, it was actually New Year's Eve, and we weren't allowed to get to shore.、Uh, our ship was tight at anchor,、uh, a couple of kilometers in front of the, the big casino there, the、uh, Marina Bay Sands yeah, casino. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So on New Year's Eve, we had you know the best view of the fireworks, but we couldn't get <laughs> onto land. And yeah, yeah we we made contact, and I didn't didn't actually physically meet her f- for a month because uh, we took the ship back to Australia. And then by the time I had got leave, I stopped into Singapore and caught up with her. And so you just like emailing and messaging and got yeah. got to really know each other before you actually met. Yeah, pretty much. Oh. It was you know um, the internet that we had on board was pretty slow, but it was reliable. So you know you could still use your, your all your chat features and stuff like that. And if you got into port, you know, and you actually had um, mobile signal, then you could you know maybe video chat. But yeah, we you know communicated like any sort of normal sort of people and. And then after that, every five weeks, either to or from the ship, I would stop in for two or three days and catch up. And and then uh, she came here for uh, maybe three or four trips, a couple, you know, couple of weeks here, sometimes just a weekend. Uh, she'd fly here. And then um, last year, she got a job as a HR manager. So she's now a visa holder and... and um, a permanent fixture in Kuchan. Yeah, in yeah. Kuchan. So she's from a small country, small country province in the Philippines. So she feels at home in the mountains. And yeah. nice. You're you're obviously, I guess, familiar, pretty familiar with the culture over there. Because how long were you in the Philippines for? You were. I had three years. Three years. Yeah. Okay. And so, when you were there, were you? Uh, that was part of the, uh, I guess, the photography work you were doing yep. while you were there. Was that? I wanted to ask, was that like still photography work or you were pro- make, uh, producing like films and stuff as well? Films. Oh, so yeah. it was mostly, mainly films. All, all, all video okay. I was doing, yeah. All video. Are, are you still doing that now at all? No, or? I haven't. Really? I, I haven't had a dive in, oh, shit, 15 years. Wow. Oh, okay, because like, it was all underwater stuff yeah. you were doing. Okay. Yeah. People who were doing their maybe first dive or others who were, you know, done their hundredth dive or whatever, I just tag along and, and um, put together, you know, around about a 15, 20 minute personal video of them and make them look good and and um, sell it to them. And, and so it was it was a good job, you know. I, I didn't have to work too hard, you know. Mm-hmm. I could sell one video and that paid for my rent for the month and sell one more and it paid for my bar bill and... So I wasn't sort of pressed on working too hard, yeah. and it was a you know beach lifestyle. Like I lived on a beautiful beach where the the reef you could literally walk out twenty wow. meters and you can go snorkeling. Man, that and sounds like the dream for like a lot of people uh, to live in that kind of environment. Oh, it was like, yeah. and I really enjoyed it, and as I said, made some really good contacts. Most of the the people visiting were uh, mostly Europeans, so uh, a lot of German speakers. So from Germany, Switzerland, Austria, were a lot of Swedes, and of course there were a lot of Australians there. Most of them were there for other activities, uh, called the night diving. <laughs> but you know, it was an excuse to do the day diving as well. So, did you become captain in the end? No, I didn't. Oh no, it was it was kind of weird because. Um, originally, I had to. It took four years for me to get fully qualified as a able seaman. What happens is you, you go to maritime school for three months, uh, which I did that in in Fremantle in Western Australia. Did that for three months. Then I had to join a ship for I think it was fifteen weeks of being a trainee. And after I did that, then I became a probationary able seaman. And then, then that took two more years after that to finish off my time to be fully qualified. And then after that, I would have had to have gone back to maritime school again for a year um, to do officer training. And everyone in the company all also wanted to do that. So it was a case of put your hand up and when the position comes up, you can do it. And then in the end, it was like the position's not coming up and then also, I didn't want to kind of leave Japan for a whole year. And one thing led to another, and it became, it was a global downturn in um, oil exp- exploration. Uh, the price of oil dropped like crazy, so no one was about to spend money on new uh, infrastructure. And our company had gone from having 20, I think we had 27 ships working in Australia, and we'd gone down to seven. Wow. And so it was a case of just trying to hang on to your job. 
and then eventually they said um, the company is going under do you want to take a redundancy and I said yeah show me a number and they gave me a number and I went okay I'll leave <laughs> <laughs> what year was this that was that was three years ago so that's 2017 something like that about that yeah, yeah. and during that time I'd always wanted to you know start my own furniture company um, mostly for myself just to build my own house and all my products so I was able to um, with that money start a, a company and sponsor myself and make furniture yeah and did your uh, did the handiwork experience start when you were uh, working for that Canadian friend down in uh, Fujisawa or I think even before that too you had some handiwork experience it's, uh, it started when I was a kid okay um, yeah. we when I was still living in my hometown, my mum decided to build a new house and she found a, a block of land actually in, in the classifieds. You know, this is pre-internet. <laughs> so she found a, a random block of land um, listed in a, in a Melbourne newspaper and went, like, this land is only you know, 15 minutes away from us and it's like $1,000 for an acre. Wow. And so we went and had a look at this piece of land and said, yeah, we'll buy it. And then so my mum and my two brothers, um, we built a log cabin. Um, nice. That was our house. So when, my, when you say you build it, like you guys actually build it with your bare hands, yep. right? Wow. How, old were you, how old were you at this my, time? I was 11. <laughs> my oldest brother was 15 and he did most of the building himself like wow. he, and and you guys didn't have any previous experience of or of you know proper training beforehand no, we, of how to build we, we, we both did woodwork classes <laughs> at school <laughs> literally that's where my brother's you know he he did most of the work and we had um a couple of family members who you know, helped put the roof on and do a few different things that we weren't technically sort of capable of but essentially, we built a house by ourselves. It was, it was a kit house, so it was a bit easier than a, a regular one. I mean, my jobs were mostly making cup of tea and, <laughs> and you know, things like that. But, you know, I did um, you know, observe a little bit. Yeah. And the high school that I went to in Australia was called a technical school. Okay. Like we had, it was more like a vocational school. So even though we did have, you know, yeah, academic subjects, most of the classes were push towards you know woodworking metalworking automotive studies like practical useful practical things yeah. Yeah. It, like people came out of this school as a tradesman that was you know what it was all about so mm. i didn't know what i was going to be at that stage but i actually when i finished high school i became a manufacturing jeweler so i did an, an apprenticeship for five years and worked as a jeweler ah. And I thought that was going to be my, my career. And, and then one day I quit and drove my car to North Queensland and, and suddenly I was an underwater cameraman. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Our high school too, man, I had a lot of those classes, and, uh, but also had like a big focus on the academic classes. And now looking back, like there was one class where they would spend uh, the, the whole year uh, building an actual house. And uh, like, you know, everybody said it was like the best class to take. And uh, so it was so popular that, uh, you know, only a small number of kids could actually take it. I was just so pushed to focus more on the academic classes and everything. And, you know, because it was all just about getting into this university or that university or whatever. And I definitely appreciate that looking back, too. But now, like, having those skills or just being more comfortable with all that stuff that's actually useful around the house and everything, instead of having to always rely on somebody else's opinion or getting help from somebody else, which is always good, too, because it's good to work with other people, but... I really wish I would have focused a lot more on developing those skills. And now, actually, uh, we're probably getting a place pretty soon. And so I'm going to have to, you know, do a little bit of work there. And uh, so I'm going to have a chance again to maybe build up some of those skills and stuff. But I really, looking back now, I wish I would have spent more time. Because those cl classes were available at our, at our school, and a lot of people were taking them too. But just missed the opportunity, yeah. So. Yeah, well, you've got YouTube now. You, yeah, exactly. you, YouTube can teach you anything. Really? Right, it's, yeah. I, I, I solely watch YouTube as my kind of uh, main form of entertainment. Yeah. I don't have uh, regular TV connected. And so for me, YouTube is just, it's just an incredible wealth of information. So you've lived in Nisco now for, for how long? 
Uh, or Kuchan? I've been in Kuchan coming up nearly 10 years. Yeah. Has it changed much since when you first got there to, to now? Because I, I lived in uh, Hirafu from, uh, when was it, 2009. I lived there 2009 for three months, just the winter yeah. season. But I haven't been back in about four years. But I've heard every year it just gets bigger and bigger. Like yeah. development, hotels. Because when I was there, they, they didn't have so many, like the big super hotels i guess or the resort hotels but now i think there's a lot more like the veil wasn't there when, okay. I, when I lived there yeah that must have been built just the year after yeah they yeah. were probably one of the the first of the big operators but it's every year it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger i think harafu is just about built out there's not much land remaining to to build any big hotels but they're still doing it <laughs> I saw a house recently that was, I think it was four years old, and they demolished it. Jeez. After four years. It was a beautiful house, but that land is worth too much for them not to put, like, say, six studio apartments on. Mm. People are still coming in with the big dollars and and knocking things down and which is great for me because i love you know recycling Mm. and so i've got such a good network of people there that you know i'll get a call and say oh you know the blue house down the street they're knocking it down next week so if you need doors windows anything you can salvage out of it then go for it and and we've got a, a really good community there both foreign and japanese who aren't into wasting stuff you know they can see the the usefulness of you know recycling and knocking knocking down a place and, and and retaining the good stuff and reusing it again because building materials aren't cheap in this country yeah. and so if you can get a free door or a free window and hopefully you can use it then you know you save some money it's a little bit of your time invested to to get it how, how do you know when something's gonna you know get demolished or become available are you within a network that uh, that news gets shared or yeah you just see something get started and you get some, over there some of it's kept very quiet yeah, um, yeah depending on who's doing the um like the property management yeah because you know they might see stuff that they want to keep themselves and mm. um and some things are just open slather but most of the places you know they'll get um, knocked down by professional companies but um, you know that say they're coming in next week so the owner or the property manager will just say look just if there's anything you want just grab it because it's, <laughs> it's, it's going to be rubble next week really? and you see so much waste like and then you know you see houses that reasonably good house you know it might be 25 years old but still in good condition gets knocked down and then they just put in the same house back in in its place and it's the bigger operators who are doing most of the the building, the the growth of Harafu. Like just around the corner from my place, we have brand new Park Hyatt, and it's you know it's one of the nicest looking buildings. And um, but the Park Hyatt is the one in Tokyo is one of the most famous popular hotels out there. Yeah. So yeah, so I guess now they got it in Nisiko now. Yeah. Did that open? That's at Hanazono this year. Yeah, um, it opened. Uh, late last year, briefly. So Hanazono is like just blown up now too. It's, it's blowing up, yeah. Like yeah. when I, I bought my land there, I think it was eight years ago, and there was there was really nothing there. And in that time, we've had the Park Hyatt built. Um, there's two more hotels further up the road that are, are going in. Wow. Um, everyone's you know, you know, trying to make their money by selling the land that they bought ten years ago and. <laughs> What, what are you doing with your land? Um, well, if someone comes along with $10 million, uh, you're waiting. I'll, I'll sell it. <laughs> I'll pay a lot of tax on it. But, but I bought my land to protect it. Like That was the whole idea. And, and my neighbor, who I do the snow clearing for, he bought the farm that, that surrounds my land to protect it. If farms go dormant for, I think it's five or seven years, then they can be converted to you know, developed property. But while the farm keeps having a crop each year, it can't get changed. So my neighbour, he, he bought the farm purely to keep it running. Mm. Like, you know, he, he probably loses 50 grand a year wow. just in running it. But, you know, he's, he's got enough money that... Um, it doesn't matter. No. It, do, it doesn't matter. And But for him, 
he doesn't want the place overdeveloped. He doesn't want it looking mm. like Harafu yeah. on the other <clears throat> side. But. I mean, they talk about, like, obviously other resort towns are, you know, there's getting a lot more development there too, Furano or around Kiruro as well. Do you think those areas someday will turn into the next Niseko or is Niseko it's a one of a kind? It's, it's hard to say. It's um, depending on their local government and how they plan things. Kuchan Town encompasses um, Hanazono Resort and uh, Hirafu Resort and so it's kind of been a bit of a free-for-all of just yeah just build 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 and get stuff done whereas you get to the other side of the ski hill to actual Nisiko town and their rules are completely different um, they're a lot more relaxed but they're also more on the eco side of things so they don't want just big concrete condominiums built there. They don't want all the forest chopped down just so you can, you know, put in your nice little estate and then replant the same trees that you just cut down. So they're pretty cool uh, about the development thing. Um, they have slightly better guidelines. They're also proactive on renewable energies and things like that. Whereas Kuchan Town is, I mean, it's, I don't want to bag them, but they're a bunch of old man potato farmers who really don't want change mm. but there are some young and up-and-coming councillors who are joining the the, uh, the board who they understand progress has to happen and they can see it at a um, like a sustainable way of doing it so like Kuchan town itself has I think it's benefited from the influx of foreign investment a lot of people probably couldn't foresee what was capable of, of the town but it, so it took a you know foreign money to come in and go you know we can do things maybe better differently but try and turn this into a place that can make money all year round Kuchan has I think the highest yen per capita expenditure on snow clearing in the world <laughs> like wow. it, it's a horrendous amount of tax money that covers snow clearing but it also has the heaviest snowfall of any town mm. in the world so yeah. so when you, you've got an average of um, I think it's 14 metres of snowfall a year in Kuchan if, if those snow clearers don't work one morning the, the town would stop I mean is, is there any Japanese development going on or is it all I mean what, what percent uh, is overseas all of it or most of it well uh, current stuff I reckon I couldn't give you the numbers but I, I would say maybe 75% would be foreign investment. Yeah. The, and that's, that's like where primarily from Thailand and Singapore or? Uh, the big, the biggest investments would be Hong Kong, China, Singapore. Okay. But, but recently, um, Thailand. Okay. Thailand has come in and well, they bought Kiroro. Wow. And they've um, just bought, I think it's the Shiki Hotel in, in Hirafu. They've just taken over that. They're, they're bringing more and more people here. There's a lot of Southeast Asia has an incredible growing middle class and they've got money. And the, I think the biggest promotions is that their TV dramas, you know, have a, a wedding scene shot in Nisiko or Karoro mm, and, and then everyone wants to join. Oh, wow. And that's so interesting to hear because when I was there, like back in 2008, 2009, it was mainly just Australians, Australians, Canadians, um, but now it's like Southeast Asians, like you said. So yeah. it's, it's probably changed a lot, even like the atmosphere maybe in, in town. Yeah, I think from the permanent population who lives there all year round, you know, there's still a lot of Australians, a lot of Kiwis, a lot of Canadians, a few Americans, Brits. They've been there for a long time, um, you know, probably since the early 2000s. They've like settled, they've got yeah, families. They yeah. settled in and, you know, they love the place for what it is. And then in the last probably 10 years, it's, it's mostly Hong Kong, China, Singapore, where the money was coming from. But they were building you know, some incredible places at the same time where they needed that investment. Go back probably to the original investors, and that was uh, Tokyo. They, they built Hirafu um, originally, but they let it sit for 25 years and you know, not give it a, a coat of paint. <laughs> and suddenly, you know, the... The hotels are looking third rate and, and no one was going to put money into it. And, and it wasn't until the foreign money came in and, and kind of changed the place for the better in, in some ways. Like um, design-wise, it you know, was actually in the 21st century. And, yeah. Um, it, it made the place, um, I guess, nicer. But, 
but I mean, I, I hate the place in winter. Like, it's too much. No, no, I'll, I'll be honest. When I when I was living there, um, I was very surprised at the atmosphere. It didn't feel like I was in Japan. It felt because you know there was only foreigners there, especially in the winter time, and I didn't really like it either. And of of all the ski resorts I've been to around the world. Is Nisiko was probably my least favorite one just because of the, the atmosphere, the vibe. It didn't really kind of know what it was supposed to be. You know, there was no real kind of character there because it was still kind of up and coming. But, um, but Burke, you went there this year, this winter, well, right? That's the thing. Like, I have friends that come over either from California or from Asia to Niseko and they're like, hey, we're going to be in Niseko. Why don't you come meet, meet us? And I'm like, man, I really don't want to go to Niseko. But, I don't really want to tell them, hey, let's go meet at this place or this other mountain because I don't really want those to <laughs> the word to get out about those. <laughs> I'm like, all right, I'll go see you. Yeah, but it, that was uh, that was like right at the beginning of uh, coronavirus. So it had uh, uh, like from Asia, inbound from Asia, it already dropped quite a bit at that point. So it wasn't too crowded. But I mean, that's what I was wondering, though. Can, I mean, can the mountain even support like all of that new customer base is going to come with all of this new development that's building in now into Hanazono as well? Yeah, well, I or? think, I mean, Hanazono is there in the process of building a, a new gondola. Um, I think it will go from Hirafu, oh, sorry, from Hanazono across to Weiss, which is the next mountain. Wow. Um, so oh. I don't know if it's going to be exclusive for the Hyatt patrons or if, or if it's going to be open for everyone, but that's um, a new lift to basically bring in a new mountain. I mean, it, it, it does get crowded up there. Like, I, I stopped going because of the crowds. I mean, we were kind of lucky in the beginning where you would never wait in line. You know, the line would, would never exist. Oh, yeah. That, when I was there, it was, yeah. it was kind of like that as well. Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, you're always going to get, you know, during Chinese New Year and, you know, Australia Day and, you know, the different main holidays. It's, it's always going to be crowded. I remember seeing pictures last year going, oh, look at these lines. There's, you know, 300 people waiting, you know, because it's first lift. We just had 60 or 70 centimetres <laughs> fresh last night. Everyone wants to get the first run. Of course, of course. And yeah. I'm sure, you know, two or three cycles after the first run, it would have been back to normal. Mm. Uh, but, you know, we, yeah. we see these pictures of these long lines and, I mean, it doesn't worry me. But next year, next year is going to be a different yeah, story. Is, yeah, yeah, this, yeah. Is, this, this is the winter, man. Yeah. <laughs> I local, think, local winter. I think um, a lot of locals are going to, um, they're going to suffer real big time this year. But probably the best thing that will come out of it is that they'll probably say, oh, do you remember that season when there was no one here? And hopefully that'll get them through. But, and but, time, to, time to dust your snowboard, right? After uh, three years. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a nice board too. It's a, it's, it was one of the, it was a fairly early Burton Fish. And it's just, it's a nice board to ride. That's a powder board, right? Yeah, as well. yeah. yeah. And, but I mean, you can ride groomers with it. You know, I, I don't. I've never been a pro. Like I, I, I don't ride switch. I don't. You know, I just want to carve and go down a hill and cruise. That sounds like me. Yeah, yeah. Do, do two or three runs and go home. It's yeah. like I've never been an all day sort of guy. And 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 the times I've gone back country, you know, I've I've had some very tolerating friends who, <laughs> who would wait for me. Or you're and, swimming out of powder. Yeah, kind of those, those situations. Yeah, <laughs> but but I never really. It's never been my thing. Like, um, I, I, like I, I way prefer snowshoeing. Oh, really? Yeah, okay, I just yeah. just because I can go anywhere I want. I mean, I've got thirty acres of forest, so yeah. there's plenty of space to to walk around in there, and and it's it's a good workout, and mm. it doesn't take up you know too much of my day, and and I mean, I, actually, I like doing it at night the best. You know, oh, wow. go for a midnight walk in the forest. It's it's pretty cool. Oh, nice. That yeah. does sound nice. Yeah. yeah. I've never done snowshoeing. Have you done? Snowshoeing? I've no, I've never done it. Yeah, I've, won, I've got a couple of friends that do it, and um, they've invited me to come along sometimes. But uh, the idea of doing it doesn't sound very appealing to me. I don't know, it just like straight exercise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like just going for a hike somewhere. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess so. If you put it that, yeah. but it's like a cold hike. No, I mean, you're, you're hot. You're, you're probably you're, you're probably hotter than when you're, you're boarding. Because you're, you're moving, working, you're working, working more. the whole time, and mm. and the biggest mistake in is that um, like when I walk into the forest, you know, my stride length is you know quite decent, and when I'm coming back, I'm so knackered that it's like I'm trying to walk back into the same footprints that I've been in, and it's just like 
you got <laughs> just remember small steps in <laughs> and small steps out you know yeah, yeah, just yeah. you know pace yourself but yeah. but i mean for me you know if i go for an hour it's a it's a good cardio wo- workout and and I can do it any time I want, and I don't have to see all those Aussies. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, Hippie, we've been going on for going on for a while now. Um, oh, wow. Hardly scratch the surface. Yeah, yeah. You're so have to have you come back again, man. for sure, man. For mm-hmm. sure, yeah. So we're probably gonna have to have to wrap it up, I think, for for today. Mm-hmm. But uh, thanks for coming, man. And it's been really good to hear about your your story. Like we were saying, you know, there's people that we've never heard a lot of their history before and and same with you like i didn't know a lot of the stuff that that you've experienced yeah there's there's a lot of interesting stuff that we that we heard today so uh, thanks for coming on man and thanks no for problem. sharing thank that. you thank yeah. you yeah. So that everyone around here has a uh, not just a single job like you know to survive in nisiko you've got to be a um, multitasker sort of multi-talented yeah there's some really interesting people there yeah uh, who... so where, where can listeners find out about your uh, your furniture business my furniture business um a bit of a shameless plugging here Yoshi, uh, yoshitomo yoshitomodesign.com instagram's probably my most updated okay thing so. yeah we'll, we'll put that link in the description yeah. so uh, listeners can uh, find out more about what what you do and yeah, so hopefully uh get get in touch with you if they want some custom custom furniture mainly right yeah yeah, yeah. Cool. And before we finish, I've got to do a little shout out to my girlfriend Daffodil. She said she wants to be mentioned. So, <laughs> there you go, Daff. <laughs> she should come on sometime. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Listening all the way from the Philippines at the moment. Oh, oh nice. nice. Well, uh, th- thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll uh, we'll catch you next time. <laughs>